0: You are listening to The Hospice Chaplaincy Show, a show where we talk about psychospiritual and psychosocial aspects of end-of-life care. And now, here is your host, Saul.
1: Thank you very much for joining us on this episode of The Hospice Chaplaincy Show. I have a very special guest for you, uh, Dr. Gretchen Kobaki. She's the author of Moving Through Grief: Proven Techniques for Finding Your Way After Any Loss. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Can you give us a little background? Where did you grow up?
2: I grew up in Sacramento, California, and left there when I was 18 to come down to Southern California for college.
1: So today we're here to talk about your book, Moving Through Grief. You know, anyone who writes about grief, uh, I believe that they write from a context. So give us the context for your book.
2: So my father died by suicide when I was 13 years old. And it was a very difficult time for my family, obviously, but we really kind of pulled together and got tough and got through it. In other words, we didn't deal with it, really. And so what happened was that there were a lot of ensuing mental health issues in the family and and just problems, coping, stress, grief that had been delayed. Um, My brother died by suicide 17 years later. Hmm. And at that time, it was something that really was a huge impact on my life. And all of what hadn't been dealt with regarding my father came tumbling out. I found a group called Survivors After Suicide, which was run by Dr. Norman Farborough at the Suicide Prevention Center in Culver City, California. He was the original uh, founder of the Suicide Prevention Hotline and a psychiatrist and I got so much out of the group that I decided to become a layperson volunteer um, counselor for the groups which were led by a licensed professional and a couple of, of lay people who'd had the same sort of loss and that was really healing for me I went into therapy, and at that point, I also a few years later decided to retool uh, from my previous career and become a psychologist. And so, I went back to grad school in my late 30s and developed an expertise in chronic health issues and grief and loss, specifically complex bereavement or complicated loss, so things like suicide, homicide, infertility, major health problems, that kind of thing.
1: As as a thirteen-year-old girl. Um to go through that uh, level of tragedy must have been really tough. Um, How how would you help your 13-year-old self today?
2: Mm, I think that's a good question. I would tell that 13-year-old that you do what you've got to do, as you did, and also to not have shame about the type of loss that happened and to ask for help from other people. Uh, I was very fiercely independent and didn't do that. And my mother didn't do that. So that was kind of the modeling in the family. So I would say that was all wrong. That did not lead to good mental health outcomes for anyone.
1: So how did shame uh, come into this intense grief?
2: Shame came in through religion actually. Uh, We were part of a Missouri Synod congregation in Sacramento, which is not the most conservative, but kind of the moderately conservative branch of Lutheranism, as I understand it. And we were told directly that it was our fault, that my father had died by suicide, and our pastor refused to hold his funeral service in the church because it was a terrible thing that he had done. Uh, so that was, um, that was an awakening.
1: Sorry to hear that uh, such a crooked theology uh, has really affected. That is, I wonder how people <laughs> process, especially people who claim to represent the holy. I wonder how yeah. they come to such radical conclusions like this. How do you blame the victims or somebody who is grieving?
2: I don't know, and it was uh, it was shocking, to say the least. And of course, we were in shock already, at, you know, fresh from a suicide loss. Um, and so the shame came from that, obviously directly. You know, we we were literally told by a religious leader and authority that there was something to be ashamed of, um, mm-hmm. and so I really took that in and didn't tell anyone about the nature of the loss uh, for a very long time, and even up to and including when I was 30, so 17 years later when my brother also died by suicide, um, I lied to people, or I deliberately left out the truth about how he had died. I just said my brother died and I don't want to talk about it. Um, So it was a really deeply embedded shame.
1: So you feel like even after 17 years, um, that shame lingered.
2: it did because it was something that I think you know I did a lot of research because that's my nature. Yeah. And reading a lot, I you know I saw a lot of things about the history of suicide, and that there was a lot of shame about it. Many, many times historically, and in many religions and cultures, people who had died by suicide were not permitted to be buried in sanctioned burial grounds. Um, or there was social exclusion of the survivors. And I just didn't know any different. So it wasn't until much later when I more formally started studying suicidology and grief work uh, that I learned how wrong that early experience was. And then it sort of became a passion and a mission to talk about it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I'm sure many of our listeners who are hearing you right now might be going through the same feelings. How did you break free? What was the pathway for you to break free out of the shackles of shame and to become a bright light and talk about grief right now and inspire a lot of people to heal?
2: I think that the the experience of going through the group, the Survivors After Suicide group, was really powerful for me. It was something where we talked about what was difficult, and I saw that transformation was possible. So, once you've completed one of those groups, which is an eight week kind of structured format group, then you can go to the ongoing follow up groups. There were social activities a couple of times a year, like potlucks, where I met other people who had the same experiences and who talked about them openly. And I saw that the world didn't end or, you know, the people didn't ostracize you because you had this kind of loss. In fact, they welcomed you. Uh, So that really was what was transformative for me was just having, a, literally having a different experience, which I do think in psychotherapy is what changes people. It's not necessarily lecturing them or giving them information, although that can be incredibly helpful, but it's letting them have a different experience.
1: Yeah. That is um, quite powerful. Uh, if you're listening, please, uh, and you haven't got a copy of this book, please, I would encourage you to get it. The, the book is called Moving Through Grave Proven Techniques for Finding Your Way After Any Loss. Uh, let's unpack it. I know you can't give too much away because we want our listeners to get this book. But in chapter one, you, you talk about living with loss. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What, what does that look like?
2: Living with loss is, um, I think, what I what I just said, right, which is to integrate the experience fully, to not have it floating around in the background as this sort of undefined thing that just haunts you forever. Um, living with it is accepting, but not surrendering or giving it away or aiming for a goal of getting over it, quote unquote. Mm. And I never encourage that idea. I say that we will, we will move through. We will get to a place of deeper understanding, of forgiveness of self or, or the person or thing that was lost or the situation that changed that caused. The grief, and by the way, grief, I am always referencing the broader thing. It's not just about the loss of a person, it could be a loss of a pet or a house or a job. Um, it's about looking at it and owning whatever we need to own if there is something. So, for example, someone who lost a job it's not just saying oh i was a victim this horrible company laid me off mm. well was there in fact something you need to look at and own or change so that's what i what i'm talking about when i'm talking about living with it it's also about taking the charge out of, of the loss so there was definitely a time when like i said i could not even tell the truth about the suicide losses in my family now i speak to thousands of people about suicide loss that's in that's integrating it that's owning it that's accepting and surrendering to it in a in a healthy way
1: why do you think that uh, we struggle um i'm almost like yeah, i lost both of my parents when i was 12 years old mm-hmm. and um i ended up in a refugee camp in northern uganda mm-hmm. and owning that loss was really hard uh and it's it's easier to create uh, a tragedy narrative where you are forever the victim, and um yes, and that makes it really in that case for me it made it harder to own the loss. It took me years, actually. Maybe I'm still grieving mm-hmm. today. Um, mm-hmm. Why do you think that we struggle? Is it because the shock of the death or the tragedy is too much that um we struggle there are, to there, there
2: are a lot of reasons that we struggle. Um, certainly it can be context, like uh, arriving in a refugee camp, which is a place of tragedy, even though it's also a place of salvation in some way. It has a lot to do with culture, religion, potentially in terms of how our people address a loss. It can also have a lot to do with underlying mental illness or... Um, poverty or other socioeconomic questions, lack uh, conditions, lack of support um, from community, from faith, from anyone who can help financially or, or socially—it's it's complicated, right? And that's that is something where what you said about the narrative of tragedy is really interesting because I think we don't. Rewrite the story per se, but the process of owning the story, telling the story enough, sharing it, getting it validated by other people who have suffered similar losses, because I'm, I'm going to guess that you are not the only such child in that refugee camp, is something where you can normalize even an abnormal experience, know that you're not alone in it know that there is no shame around it, know that there are people who support you in moving forward. And changing that narrative also sometimes moving, trying to move away from a victim stance. And certainly as a child, you were absolutely a victim. I was a victim also. That's also something where I want to not over identify as a victim. So I would say that my mother over-identified as a victim moving forward, and it led to some really tragic mental health consequences for her, which, of course, cascaded onto us, the surviving children. Um, But changing that narrative by talking about it and working through the bits and pieces where we tell ourselves stories that may not be true about what happened, so it's really common for children Mm. to blame themselves for the loss of their parents, Um, they feel like if only I didn't yell at my dad before he got in the car, he wouldn't have crashed and died. Mm. It's not true, but it's that kind of childlike magical thinking. And sometimes we carry that through also around, around death in particular, um, but other stories as well. So I think the, the power of story is really, it's significant and helpful if we use it correctly.
1: Do you find that acceptance is a key to beginning to own uh, the loss? I I do, for hospice, I do some kind of grief uh, counseling, and I remember calling this lady whose husband died, and she's like, my husband has been sick many times and he's gone to the hospital many times and has Mm -hmm. always come back. Mm -hmm. Even now he's dead, I feel like he, he, he might walk through the door because he has always come back.
2: So acceptance, I look at in the context of mindfulness, acceptance not being a giving in or a giving up. Mm. It is saying, this is my situation. It may be hard to believe, but the intellectual part of me knows that my husband is dead. The emotional part of me can't quite believe it yet. So knowing, it's really helpful for grievers to know that the experience of grief may not be synchronous. So you may be familiar with the term asynchronous or irregular development. In grief, we have the same experience. It takes a while for the heart and the mind and the body to all catch up with each other and to really come solidly into a place of knowing, believing, and accepting.
1: With that, we'll take a little break. And again, our guest is Dr. Gresham Kubaki. She's the author of Moving Through Grief. We'll be right back.
0: If someone you know is suffering from mental health issues and could use some support, please call the National Alliance for Mental Illness Helpline. It is a free nationwide peer support service providing information, resource referrals, and support to people living with a mental health condition. To contact the NAMI Helpline, please call 1-800-950-NAMI. That's 1-800-950-6264, Monday through Friday, or send an email to info I'm
1: Solle Bem, and you're listening to the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. We continue our conversation. Uh, in Chapter 2, you deal with reconnecting with what matters. And what does that look like?
2: So reconnecting with what matters is something that can be done formally or informally. And by the way, the book that I wrote is written through the lens of ACT, which is acceptance and commitment therapy. So if you're not a a psychotherapist, you may not have heard of this. But the basic premise is that we, by moving into identifying the things that we value and creating goals that are aligned with our values, moving forward towards them, even when we don't achieve them, we will get to a greater place of happiness. So if you just sort of randomly do things, you're not going to get there. So in in that chapter, identifying the goals and values, we start by looking at the different aspects of life. So it might be community, family, creativity, environment, education, spirituality, those sorts of, of major realms of life. And working with our patient, our client, our griever, we then will help them identify what's most important to them and then help them create goals that are aligned with that. So, for example, if someone wanted to um, move more deeply into their spirituality, we might talk to them about how do you get to church or temple once a week? What sort of work might you do? Between those formal sessions, do you want to read your Bible or your Torah or Quran on a daily basis? Do you want to make notes? Do you want to have a study buddy for learning about those things? As they start to do those things, they get satisfaction out of them and a feeling of accomplishment. And Magically, they're a little less depressed because they're more connected, they're more aware, they're more into a complete sense of self and not just the deep feeling state of distress.
1: So this is more in relation to meaning making than helping them find meaning.
2: Um, meaning making is interesting because it's something that, you know, I'm sure you're aware in in terms of formal grief studies. Now it's kind of considered to be the sixth stage of grieving, according to um, some folks. And I agree that meaning making is important. It's not absolutely necessary, but I think it does help with accepting the loss and moving through it. So if I say, it's a terrible thing that my house burned down. It's horrible, mm. horrible loss. I'm a victim of this. It's I'm never going to recover from the things that I lost. If you can make meaning of it and say, instead, this was a horrible loss. It's always going to be a horrible loss. There are irreplaceable things. And it gave me an opportunity to start over, to not be burdened by the things of the past, my inheritance, my possessions. Similarly, if you can make sense of a loss of a person, In my case, I never would have become a suicidologist or bereavement specialist or probably even a psychologist if I hadn't had the losses that I had had. Mm. And I think that what has happened as a result of those is there's been a a magnification of the power of my abilities or intellect in a way that is really helpful for humanity. Mm. So I consider it to be a gift even though it's a painful gift that I had those losses.
1: I mean, grief has a way of taking us off balance. And uh, so reconnecting again with what matters, what gives our lives purpose and what, you know, what keeps us going, I think uh, it is uh, one of the powerful aspects. And, and, and it, it, surely, it surely helps in the healing process. And then uh, in Chapter 3, you talk about following your inner compass.
2: Mm hmm. So again, the idea of following your inner compass, it's about looking at what matters to you, not other people and not living according to the values of others. And I want to put that in a note because I come to this as a white Western Christian defined person more broadly worldwide looking at different cultures there is a lot stronger influence typically from culture and religion in terms of the communal so white western society being individualistic other cultures being collectivistic um with that i think it is important to still say What is of value to me? So even if you live in a culture where it is family first, individual second, Mm -hmm. you can still focus on what is important to you. Are you an intellectual person and pursue things that way? Are you someone who pursues a spiritual path? Are you someone who pursues an artistic and creative expressive path? And so on. It may be that your value is on environment, and that's how you glorify God. For example, if we're talking in that sense, Mm -hmm. we can all align with our values in ways that are not necessarily um, selfish or entirely self-centered. They can mesh with our communal or collective values.
1: Do you find that uh, in your counseling process, do you find that people struggle with connecting with their inner compass? And if so, what is that?
2: They often do, and I find that that happens probably the most in people who either have been lifelong caregivers mm. who who were taught or who learned how to suppress their own needs and care for other people. So this is often people who come from families with addiction or mental illness mm. or both, uh, they become, they overlearn that and they have no idea what it is they actually want or need. And so that is often a really lengthy process of learning about taking care of themselves and not feeling like they're selfish or that they are taking away from someone else because in so many cases, that is precisely what they were taught. So So, mm -hmm. true true north is really, what do I want? It's not about being selfish, like, give me all the stuff. (laughs) It's what's actually important to me.
1: Yeah, most caregivers are really selfless. You know, they they just pour themselves out there. and, And they feel like if they take time off for themselves, they're being so selfish. How do you break through?
2: With that, I give them some education about what happens when there is no break from caregiving. We see this so much, especially in things like extended illness, chronic cancer, or Alzheimer's, for example, and it really wears people out. So I give them education about what the the physical and medical side effects are. Often, um, what they can do in terms of preventative care, how they might get refreshment from very small breaks, even, and teaching them that their purpose is not to surrender their lives or to sacrifice their lives in favor of one other person.
1: Yeah, yeah that's, that, that's important. And then you, you continue with coming to terms with the pain. Mm-hmm. Yes. And that is where many of us struggle, <laughs> coming to terms with this pain of loss of a loved one
2: so coming to terms with pain i think is a lifelong process grieving is a lifelong process one of the things that i find helpful talking to people who have gotten somehow stuck in their grief there's often an underlying belief that if i stop talking about it or if i stop actively grieving or presenting as depressed or or something like that if i if i stop talking about my suffering then it's proof that I didn't really love the person. Mm. So I need to stay in that position to demonstrate my love and my, my fidelity. So
1: performance person. in a sense of performative grief.
2: Yeah, I think there is definitely performative grief. There's also the whole issue of secondary gain, which mm. is something we don't talk enough about, I don't think. But for many people... The, of course, there's secondary gains where we see something like a person who's feigning disability in order to get disability insurance coverage. Um, but we see the need for attention sometimes is really great, and the person doesn't know how to seek attention in a healthy way or seek support in a healthy way. So that may be something we need to look at. The other aspects of it, I think, are... Particularly when you're talking about something like an extended period of illness, where Mm -hmm. a person really got lost in that caregiving role, or they worked for a company where they worked 70 hours a week and sacrificed everything, never took a vacation, then the company unceremoniously lays them off a few years later and they really have no idea what to do with themselves we may need to look at how do you build or rebuild a life, which is where we get back to the idea of working around values. If I know that my value in life is centered on environmental wellness, it suggests a number of activities in which I might engage to strengthen that. And so that is something where reexamining. Who am I? How did I come to be? What is actually important to me? What else might I need to lose in the process Mm. of getting through this grief and not identifying so strongly with it? So this is where, for me as a psychologist, I may differentiate some pretty strong pathology, Mm. and that may require other forms of treatment, but I think in general, the idea of, of... kind of encouraging, loosening up the hold on that identity as a griever is, is important. And, and also giving permission, really, to grieve forever, because we as chaplains or psychologists or therapists or counselors, we are authority
1: figures. Mm. So bring it on. How did you personally come to terms with your multiple losses? I mean, right now you look back and you have all this amazing experience, but in in those moments, how did you come to terms?
2: Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that is a hard one to break down. Um, <laughs> how I came to terms with it was in part to withdraw and do my own thinking. So, while I am a voracious reader and I love research, I do believe that experience is everything and I have to filter through my own lens. So I got really thoughtful about these things and what they meant. I also sought a lot of therapy Mm -hmm. uh, to help me deal with all of this because along the way, I've had many other losses aside from these two really pivotal suicide losses. I've come to realize that life is a constant cycle of Mm -hmm loss and gain loss and gain and we're always moving in and out of that if we treat grief and loss as this exceptional circumstance that is a huge tragedy we set ourselves up for a lot of suffering if instead we know and accept that there will constantly be losses As we age, we will lose aspects of our health. We will lose members of our family and other loved ones. If we have pets, we know that there is a very finite time on their lives. Similarly, with experiences like getting an education or taking a trip, there are all sorts of losses. But I I look at loss now as just part of the constant cycle of life. So part of what I like to focus on is that broader context. We always need to look at what is specifically important in the moment. But for me, it's saying, I'm going to have loss in some way every day, tiny loss. But for example, we are going to have a loss in a minute when we end this podcast interview. That's okay.
1: Hmm. So in a sense, you've normalized um, that this is a fact of life.
2: I do normalize that it's a fact of life without diminishing the fact that there are more severe losses than others. So not every loss is equal. The fact that I will wrap up my work week in a few hours, it's a small loss. I'll have to disconnect from my beloved role as a psychologist, but I will open up to something else to occur this weekend. So When we start to look at loss as something that is just a part of life, because it really is, we're born, we die. These are our universal experiences. And so we do have to come to a place of peaceful understanding about them and know also that our feelings are not permanent. We will have intensity of feelings and our feelings will recede. And when I'm able to think of it in that way, I know that I have a very good history of getting through a great deal of loss. And I really trust and believe in my ability to continue to move through grief.
1: Yeah. Earlier, you spoke about how you sought for help, you know, going through counseling. I've had to go through that. Some of our listeners and including me, I come, you know, in Africa where I grew up, Um, People do not believe in going and seeking grief counseling, you know. right? (laughs) And, (laughs) And I know there are so many cultures around the world, you know, who somehow think a different type of way when it comes to going and talking to a therapist and processing your feelings. How do you encourage those people in that context?
2: Yes, this is something that I think, Western psychology has pathologized as people who don't want to seek help. I would, first of all, really unpathologize it or depathologize <laughs> it because we need to respect different cultural systems and beliefs, whether that is religion or just the nature of culture. So, for example, African culture is a very distinct thing that is quite different from Asian culture. And looking at that as This is a people who have survived for thousands and thousands of years. They've gone through many, many losses. How did they do it without therapy? Well, they did it through community, through faith, through religion, through family, through readings, practices, ceremonies that I may know nothing about. And I have to respect that. So in supporting other people who come from a different Community or cultural belief than mine. I want to be curious about what that is for them and look at what death means in, in context. So in faith where, for example, there's a belief in reincarnation, death is not quite as tragic for a lot of people because they have this firm belief that the person's not really lost. They'll reappear in a different form. That is tremendously comforting. And I think we can we can take those beliefs. And and certainly as a psychotherapist, it's my task not to impose my beliefs on someone else, but to work with what they present to me. So I look at things from a strength based perspective, I believe that everyone has some internal resources, they may just be buried, suppressed, not well developed enough. But my job is to help them uncover their inner resources and strength, use what they've got learn some new things, pick
1: up and go on from there. Well, that would take a little break and we'll be right back. Continuing to be a leader
2: in the field of spiritual care at the end of life, Hospice Chaplaincy provides high quality professional development webinars that will improve your practice of spiritual care at the end of life. Check out our latest webinars at www.hospicechaplaincy.com.
1: I'm Salibem, and you're listening to the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. We continue our conversation. Uh, in chapter five, you talk about showing up for your life. I mean, that that's just reading it alone. That's that's powerful. <laughs> Show up for your life.
2: Yes, a lot of times when there's grief, especially intense grief, what we tend to do is retreat. It's the hallmark of depression: is is failure to involve in life, failure to engage. And so showing up for your life, the life that you're interested in, the life that you choose, not a rejection of the other things. So even if you have a difficult family, a different difficult culture, society, set of circumstances, you still show up, you make a choice about it. A lot of times grief hits in a way that feels like all choice has been taken away from us. We certainly did not want to lose our parents. We didn't want to lose our jobs or our homes or whatever it is that we lost. There's a lot of powerlessness about that. By making a choice proactively and saying, what I really want to do with my time in my life is learn how to play a musical instrument so that I can make people happy and glorify God, then we are regathering choice, we're claiming choice. That is a significant step in working through grief, to know that despite having an overwhelming tsunami of feelings that are out of control at times, there are still ways we can have control.
1: Yeah, I think sometimes when, uh, depending on the magnitude of the loss, we feel like, how can we even continue with life like this after this loss? I remember for me as a child, I'm like, how can I, what does even life have for me?
2: Mm-hmm. You know, I
1: went through lots of periods of societal ideation thinking there's nothing after this. I'm 12, your parents are gone. W- what is life? What is, you know, so, um, yeah, depending on the magnitude of the, uh, the loss, sometimes people feel completely shattered. We're we're showing up for their lives. It seems almost an impossible task.
2: Right. And so part of what happens with that, and I would say in, in terms of the context of children, it's particularly powerful because when you're a child, your parents are your entire life. It is not easier as we get older, but we do have other points of reference. And, uh, certainly, in a situation like yours, where you lost your parents, you lost your home, you lost your familiar community and and got relocated into probably a scary place um, alone, then we're talking about really complex issues. But I think that the the recentering on what we do know, what we can predict is really a helpful thing. It's also that feeling of being shattered and overwhelmed like i'll often use the term tsunami of grief it's that powerful it feels like it literally knocked you out and now you're drowning and again we start really really small so even just within the context of therapy the fact that someone manages to call me and then to show up for a session is a way of reclaiming a little bit of control a little bit of agency It is stepping out for half a second from the depth of that grief. I will build on that one moment where they managed to call me or managed to show up. And the one moment is really important because people will often start with this overwhelming uh, feeling of grief and they say, I'm crying all the time. I never mm. stop crying. I'm, mm. I'm so sad. There's nothing good left in life. And yet we're having a conversation and you're not crying. Mm. So I'll point that out. Can we have this one moment be okay? You are clean. You are dressed. You are fed. You're sitting in a comfortable chair and you're having a conversation with the person who cares about you. Mm. Is this one moment okay?
1: Hmm. So affirming, build on that. Yeah, so affirming any positive uh, aspects, positive things uh, <laughs> that right. so, Yeah.
2: So, so not fighting against their position that everything is bad. Yeah, but just pointing out little bits of where it's not so bad.
1: And that helps to actually reframe the narrative, mm-hmm. bit by bit, and <laughs> that leads us to chapter six. You're bigger than your sadness. And that's the truth. That's the truth.
2: You are, because again, grief is a constant in our lives and it is inescapable in some way. So even though we may know people who are 40 years old and they've never lost anyone or anything, um, they've still had many losses along the way and they have learned how to deal with them. But it is... We are bigger than that because otherwise we would be completely lost the first time there is a loss, and we're not.
1: Why do you think that um, sometimes we it's hard for us to even recognize that? We feel like our sadness is way big, (laughs) bigger than us.
2: Yeah, sadness, I think, is so intense and unfixable. And particularly in Western culture, we look for the fix. It is something that is also, because we've sanitized grief and pushed it out of the way a lot, it is more difficult to deal with. I look at other cultures where people might be engaged in washing the body and preparing it for burial. And they'll have community, they'll have food or looking, for example, in Judaism, where there's a prescribed rate of progression through the grieving process. A body must be buried within 24 hours. It is burial, not cremation. We sit Shiva for a week. At the end of a year, we have the yard site ceremony and candle and placement of the stone. Those sorts of things help to pace people and ease the transition. Where we don't have those markers, or where grief gets pushed away, like in my early grieving situation in suicide, where I didn't get to have anything outside of that first week. People showed up with casseroles. There was a funeral, and and then it was back to normal. Mm -hmm. And so the grief is something that really does need a lot of attention, especially in the beginning. Over time, though, the need to tend to the grief once it's been fully expressed, should decline. If it doesn't decline, then we may be looking at something else, like an underlying depression, for example. But when we give it the attention it needs, instead of hiding it, denying it, pushing it away, it actually paradoxically lessens in intensity.
0: Hmm.
1: That is the truth. And then chapter 7, you talk about your path forward. What does a path forward even look like
2: forward looks like whatever you want it to look like so (laughs) not not denying that there are limitations on life if you're a child you can't go and get your own house for example um you know if you had an accident that was disabling you don't get to reattach your legs but you get to have a different experience and you get to make choices around it and so that path forward is hopefully at that point, if, you, if you've if you kind of been following along with the principles of this approach to grieving, you will see that there are choices. You will know which choices are more important to you and which ones are less important. And you will have tried out some of the things along the way that support your having a different kind of experience. And again, it's that one moment, one thing. Can I have a moment that is joyful even in the midst of my grieving? And we build on that and hopefully take that in as a a new paradigm for thinking our way through different things and even not to dismiss joyful experiences, but also to know that those will disappear and, again, to be more centered fully in those experiences in the moment that they're occurring.
1: How can our listeners get a hold of your book and how can they find you?
2: Sure. The book is for sale in all of the usual channels, Amazon, Barnes and Noble. I'm sure the publishers have made that <laughs> amply clear and available. Getting a hold of me through drgretchenkubaki.com is my website. Um, and yeah.
1: Dr. Kubaki, this has been quite a, an amazing uh conversation. I've been sitting here interviewing for three years and you're one of the smartest people I've met. And uh, thank you very much for sharing some of your wisdom uh, with our audience. And because grief is is really, it's a beast. It's something that you can't run away from. Mm -hmm. It's something that you have to confront and deal with to move on.
2: Yeah. I like to say we need to kind of cozy up to our grief, which sounds repellent at first, but The more you do it, the easier it gets. And by easier, I don't mean easy, like that was a piece of cake, but easy, like having ease about it, not being afraid from it and running away from it. So I really appreciate the opportunity to talk in depth about grief. It is one of my passions.
1: What are your final thoughts? Just one last.
2: One last thought is everyone can get better when they have grief regardless of how long it has been since the thing that created the grief and it's okay to grieve forever to some degree
1: thank you very much you're welcome that was dr gresham Kubaki, the author of moving through Grief: proven techniques for finding your way after loss thank you for listening
0: This show is brought to you by Hospice Chaplaincy, promoting excellence in spiritual care at the end of life. This episode was recorded at Audio Hive Podcasting in Julia, Illinois. You can find our podcast everywhere podcasts are available. If you enjoy listening to this show, please don't forget to give us your feedback by writing a review on iTunes. For more information, please visit www.hospicechaplaincy.com.